it's probably one of the things that comes up most often when I travel and speak really all over the world. When someone has a particular political passion or wants to scapegoat a certain group, it really often comes back to fear. You want to take my guns or the Muslims are coming for me. And and it, this, I see these things, I see this as, the, this is a real opportunity for deeper discipleship and spiritual formation, that our faith calls us not to be afraid, but to, there's no fear in love. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush-for-brains evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump? It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself... A Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at NPEPodcast.com. Ah, uh, yeah, happy uh, whatever day this is we're recording it on. I've been in the house so long, I don't know one day from another, and uh, maybe you're feeling the same these days. <laughs> I, I feel like maybe I'm getting a little bit of cabin fever in it, but Paul Swearingen here on the Nonpartisan Evangelical. Glad you're with us on the podcast, and going to have fun talking with Mark Scandrett today, who is an author and teacher uh, from the Bay Area out here in California. Yeah, this is the longest I've been home in a long time, and... Um, and I, it doesn't look like I'm going anywhere anytime soon either. <laughs> well, Mark is, like I said, is an author and a teacher. He's uh, he written a, a book called Practicing the Way of Jesus and uh, some other things that we'll get into. But Mark and I met as the Vote Common Good Tour came through. And those of you who listen to the podcast, we've talked with Doug Paget, who's the leader of that. And they're going, they, they were going around the country on a bus before all this happened to talk to people about voting Christian values and uh, maybe Corinthians 13 and those types of things. But so how did you get involved with Vote Common Good and uh, being a, a good evangelical Christian as you've been much of your life? How did you go around asking people to may think about voting a little bit differently than the going mindset yeah. of the evangelical church? Well, I'm an old friend of Doug Paget's and a lot of the other uh, folks who are involved in Vote Common Good. And Doug said, let's travel the country and talk to people about faith and politics. And so in two, fall of 2018, I joined the tour, and I think we got to about 19 cities, 20 cities together for my part of the tour, and got to, to meet and talk with thousands of people about that question of how, where, do, where does faith and politics come together? And, and where does it come together? I, I, I think, you know, for a lot, of, a lot of us growing up in maybe the more white evangelical church, voting your values has meant, or voting your faith has meant voting Republican or conservative. And, but how do you see that faith and our civic engagement ought to intersect? Yeah, I, I think that the, the teachings of Jesus should really inform how we show up in public. And 
so the Sermon on the Mount, I would say, is is kind of a key text that would inform how we how we um, show up in the world, and it really invites us into a new consciousness. You know, the, I, I'd like to call it the consciousness of the kingdom of God, where instead of operating out of our maybe our base human motivations, which to me would be like fear, worry, anxiety, us and them thinking that we're being called into uh, a deeper reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God that would reshape our insides and allow us to show up less defensively and more generously in public and civic life as well. Yeah. Fear is a big part of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, I would say it's probably one of the things that comes up most often when I travel and speak really all over the world is that when someone has a particular political passion or wants to scapegoat a certain group, it really often comes back to fear. You want to take my guns or the Muslims are coming for me. And and it, this, I see these things, I see this as, this is a real opportunity for deeper discipleship and spiritual formation, that our faith calls us not to be afraid, but to, there's no fear in love. So you've pastored, you pastored in the Bay Area for about 12 years, you were telling me. So obviously you, you've studied the Bible, I would assume, yeah. in all of that. And I, I mean, do you, do you, I, I'm guess, I, I just don't see this Republican Jesus. And, and I know we were talking about most, most people wouldn't say, well, I think God's a Republican. But yet we feel as Christians, it compels us to be Republican and conservative yeah. sometimes. But I'm not sure where people get that in the Bible. It doesn't seem to me like it's in there necessarily. Well, I think that a couple of things. One is I, I was not aware of my political proclivities as a young person. I went to churches where I think we all, we would, we would have all said we were nonpartisan, but we all voted conservative Republican. And, and if you didn't, you didn't talk about it because you would have been excluded and shunned um, from your, this precious community that you're a part of. I, I think maybe a second thread that accounts for this is that I, maybe we've had the idea that on a personal level, we want to exercise the character of Christ, which means we should love our enemy, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse us, and care for the, care for the poor. But that maybe we've we sort of said that's how we should be individually. But politics is something else. Politics is dirty. And it's it's more we almost have more of a let's say evolutionary you know survival of the fittest instinct when it comes to that and maybe maybe something i would relate to that as well is if you look at the history of christian faith globally when we we we've tended to follow the ethics of christ until we get power uh. And then yeah. we throw out. Then we throw out everything that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's very true, and I and I'm like you. I've had that journey too of growing up, sort of conservative evangelical. And I actually was thinking about this over the past week. You know, I was thinking, what was the start of my journey to have that transformed in me a little bit? And 
And I've actually traced some of it back to sort of the eschatology, last days rapture mm. thinking that I grew up with in that. So what happened in that is my expectation was the world was going to get increasingly bad and increasingly dark. And as that happened, then Jesus was going to come and take all the good people out. Mm. And so I don't think it's a conscious thing, but then you kind of start looking for signs of that. And even maybe you start rooting for it a little bit because yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't root for the day when Jesus comes and takes me out and I get to tell everybody, I told you so, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, and so when that eschatology started getting jostled a little bit in my belief system in that, I think it started changing my belief that there was sort of this good side and this evil side that that the evil side was going to take over for a while until Jesus came and got us. So I don't know yeah. if you've seen that journey in, in other people or what that journey has looked like for you. Yeah, I'd say for me, I grew up in a pietistic Christian tradition. My parents are very dear followers of Jesus. Their faith was very personal to them. I'd say most, my parents and most of their friends were what I would call apolitical. Like there's one time a year where you're political and it's the day you vote and otherwise you're disinterested and it does feel dirty. And let's just focus on loving people and, you know, not really engage in civic life because it's complex and we're, we're simple people who want to want a simple, um, clear, good way of, of life. And in the communities that I grew up in, there was a lot of sincerity, but I think often a fear of the other. So we didn't know people or relate closely with people who saw the world differently or who had different experiences than us. And so it was very easy to, to misrepresent someone from a different political background, someone from a different race, someone from a different socioeconomic situation. And we could say things about them that would just be confirmed, you know, well, you know, if those poor people just stop spending their money on cigarettes, or if people would just choose to do this, they wouldn't have the problems that they have and, you know, things like that. And probably one of my big shifts was at, because I, because I was, I, I really was very sincere in wanting to be an ardent follower of Jesus. I noticed Jesus having deferential care for the poor. And I thought, if I want to follow Jesus, then I need to be in relationship with people who are in suffering and struggle. And I quit college after a couple of years, convinced my girlfriend, who's now been my wife for 28 years, to also quit university. And we moved to inner city Minneapolis to work at an inner city mission, wow. like a rescue, a rescue mission. And that's when the unraveling began for me because I thought the I'm, I'm finally in relationship and caring community with people that I would have put on the other side in terms of race and class, and sometimes in, ter in terms of their political proclivities as well. And so my category started getting messed with a little bit. And I thought these, the, 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 the systems are, are working for me because I'm, I'm white and I'm straight and I'm, I'm, you know, upper, upper middle uh, class and the systems aren't set up as well to benefit people who are minorities and who are poor. 
And so that, that was kind of the beginning of my awakening to some of those things. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's a, a fascinating journey. And I, I think sometimes, and I think you're right. I, I think even I, I, the, the, the people that I'm talking to and asking them to challenge their mindsets through this podcast, are, are, I would say they're, they're good people. I think they have a heart, heart for yeah. God. They're trying to live out Jesus as best as they can see him. But you're right. We start living out the Jesus we see in our circle and our bubble rather than the Jesus mm-hmm. we see in the Bible sometimes. Well, and there was one, there was one exception to political engagement in the communities that I grew up in. And that was over, around abortion. And I was shaped in my early discipleship by somebody by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He was my guy yeah. when I was a teenager. And I loved his books on apologetics and sort of a philosophical approach to the gospel. And, but I think he also had a, he tended to have a, a romantic view of the old America of a time when most people were church attenders and things like that. And there was a negativity there and sort of a scapegoating of secularism was what was to blame for any problems that we have. And as a result of reading his book with, that he wrote with C. Everett Koop, I, I and my friends would protest in front of abortion clinics. And we were really doing what we, we wanted to do. We really cared. We really wanted to see good come to the world. And I, I appreciate that sincerity. And there's a, there's a preciousness to innocence and naivete. But I think we're also called to love, love God with our, our mind and not just engage in platitudes and to take our engagement in civic life a bit more seriously. But I wrote all my papers in, in college in my political science classes on the gift of the conservative right. And I really felt our call to re-engage in politics and take back the country again. And that made sense to me. I was the precinct chairman of the Republican Party in my district when I was 21 years old, went to Mm. the regional meetings and things like that, dipping my toe in in the political sphere Wow! because I cared and because I believed in personal responsibility, that I have agency and that if each of us do what we can, the world would be a better place. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and, and by the way, I still personally believe in personal responsibility. Yeah. But, yeah. But I've learned that there are some people that aren't working from the same framework as me and some people that don't have the same opportunities as me and my kids. And so I'm learning to understand that one of the things somebody told me once that I like is, uh, we're asking people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And, and they're saying to us, I don't even have boots, much less yeah, bootstraps to right. pull up. And so we've got to make sure they've got some bootstraps to pull up before we can demand they pull them up. Yeah. Yep. So. Well, and I think as I got older, I started to examine a bit more some of the f- foundational assumptions of, the, of my worldview and began to, when I, when I delved deeply into particularly the Gospels, going, are my assumptions and my worldview in agreement with the character and vision of the kingdom that Jesus had? And it felt like there was a few key places of disconnect for me. The, it doesn't seem like Jesus was scapegoating 
certain groups of people for for the problems that we have. Yeah, you know, there um, systems are broken, but we're the system, and we we take we have responsibility. So scapegoating should probably not be a part of my posture to the world. We already mentioned this, but fear shouldn't be a part of my life if I'm a follower of God in the way of Jesus. And so if I, if I move beyond that, how does that shift my worldview and my view of others? Compassion rather than judgment is core to the gospel. Yeah. So how much of how I've seen the world is shaped by contempt for certain people, judgment and blaming versus a sympathetic look and saying, every person I see is my brother or sister. We're all in this together. How do we pursue God's best for our lives? Yeah. Gosh, I think that's so good. And, and I, I think you, you said earlier, you know, we like it simple and, you know, just, and, and simple is give me the rules and the people that follow the rules are good and the people that don't aren't. And I think, I think you're right. I think what Jesus came to show us is actually God, God likes to get into the mess with us and the mess of life. And, and so, it, sorry, hit my microphone there, but so we tend to want to go either to the right side or the left side and say this side's all right or that side's all right. So yeah. neither side is really jumping to be in the mess of life is messy. And actually the, yeah. the excitement of the journey is kind of walking through that mess together. Mm-hmm. Well, and something I, I came of age during the what's now looked back on as the emerging church movement. And so there was a lot of us who grew up conservative evangelical who had a major shift or deconstruction and it reshaped our faith life and our politics. But what I noticed happening in myself and to a lot of my friends is that we we were still living in a, in a binary way of seeing the world. So the bad guys are now the good guys and the good guys are now the bad guys. (laughs) We're still scapegoating. We're still blaming our problems on other people. We're still paranoid and afraid. We've just moved around the chess pieces a little bit. And it feels like the gospel's calling us to a higher level of consciousness where we don't scapegoat and operate out of fear and us versus them anymore. Hmm. And that's a, that's, a, that's a revolutionary leap to, to move into that new kind of consciousness. So how, do, how does that manifest itself in your politics then as you're, as you're engaging in politics? Well, I think maybe the first thing is I've had to acknowledge that, mo- well, as a, someone who has entertained both conservative and more progressive ideas, when I, when I don't have skin in the game, it's, it costs me nothing to have a certain opinion about how government should work and probably that's probably more at the root of this than anything is that we've been that across the spectrum we've been spectators rather than participants and so we we make friends with people who agree with us and we look and blame, look at others and blame blame them for why the systems are screwed up but i think what takes a lot more courage and what the gospel invites us into is to say, I need to get involved civically, more like on a more basic level than even, than politics. Just who's the council person that's part of the precinct of my neighborhood? What what are the decisions that impact my neighbors? You know, and 
gain like like s- some competency and vocabulary for knowing how how public life even works and anyone who goes on that journey finds out it's very messy and it's very complicated and there aren't simple solutions to the s- struggles that we face there's limits to how much money is available and to you know all of those sorts of things and if something's going to change it requires concerted effort by hundreds and thousands of people just to just to change something locally you know and mm-hmm. how many how many of us are willing to put the time in to invest in public life yeah but that's that's what's needed well and i think even government gets otherized in that government is some big yeah. evil thing out there when actually the government is the the collective will of the people and and if you get enough people to agree with you in that and start a movement you can change the government and so i think we we have to even de-otherize the government and say no it's actually our representatives and yes they're not always as responsive as we would like for them to be but mm-hmm. but let's not make a bad correction to that let's actually get engaged yeah. 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 So I, I like to ask myself the question, if I'm concerned about how my city works or how our country works or concerned about a, a particular social issue, how, what am I, what is the spirit inviting me to do to participate? I need to get more educated on the topic. I need to understand how, how decisions are made. And that's a real uh, crash course in, you know, s- stepping up to public life. And it's going to be, it requires a commitment of time and a humility to be a learner rather than someone who presents himself as an expert. Yeah. Um, well, it was a bit of our, of our family journey and uh, both, both grew up in pastor's homes and conservative evangelical homes. And part of it was just seeing in particularly in the Old Testament, that that there's just this common theme of seek the welfare of your city. Yeah. Mm, Jeremiah yeah. twenty nine seven. Seek the welfare of your city, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Or seek the shalom yeah. is what that word actually yeah. is. And over and over again, you see that. Like if and and even Jesus was saying, "Woe to the cities!" You know, "Woe to Capernaum!" Woe, you know, that doesn't mean everybody in Capernaum was going to have a bad day on Judgment Day, but the but the mindset of that city needed yeah. to be be changed toward justice and shalom for the people. And then, then we look at Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 68, and, and it has this definition of what a city of shalom looks like, where there's good health care and people live a long life and they have great education and their kids are going to have an inheritance. And, and yeah. we started just being struck in our spirit that, hey, God cares about good city planning and good streets and good neighborhoods and not just abortion yeah. or gay marriage. And so yeah. those are the things that really transform kind of how we look yeah. at civic engagement. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. That's a huge shift to go. Wow. I, I remember when this happened for me, I, I was, I was influenced quite a bit by somebody by the name of Dallas Willard, who wrote a Hallmark book called um, the divine conspiracy. And in it, he, he talked about the reality of the kingdom of God. And that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he's, talking about the shalom, the, the vision of peace and wholeness that was what I would like to call the Genesis vision of the creator. 
And so the kind of salvation that, that the gospel invites us into is a total transformation of people and, and systems so that the world works as God desires, uh, God, according to God's good dream for all of creation mm. and humanity. And that means if, as followers of God in the way of Jesus, we're being invited to care about everything our creator cares about. And you see how this played out in the um, Hebrew Bible. Particu- I, I know there, it's, the, these aren't portions that are particularly fun or interesting for us to read, but all those, you know, the cleanliness laws and the, the you know, where, where to put the toilets and what happens if somebody has acne or mildew, you know, <laughs> here or there, you know, in their, in their, in their house, the, the, the priests had something to say about pimples and mildew and where to put bathrooms. And it's because all of these things are important to human flourishing. And, and so, and so our creator cares about every aspect of our embodied being. And if as followers of, of God in the way of Jesus, we're invited to, to care passionately about every aspect of, of, of our existence. I think one of the things that, influences that awareness at least for me it's been if you live in a neighborhood in a community where you have excellent schools good home values most people are homeowners and are winners and are thriving in life you can assume we don't have to really think about these things but if you relocate to a pockets of your city or neighborhoods that lack good education, public safety, job opportunities, you immediately become aware of how much we need these things and aware of the struggle it is to see, to see these good dreams of the creator established. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And one of the things we learned in Fresno is there's an incredible concentration of poverty. Like our, our impoverished neighborhoods are really grouped together and to find out that a young person growing up in a particular zip code in Fresno versus the zip code that my kids are growing up in, my kids, by just that advantage of living in 93711, which is my zip code, mm-hmm. they have a, an, a life expectation of 20 years longer, 20 years yeah. more than somebody of the same age in this other zip code or these zip codes. And mm-hmm. I just think God's heart is just torn apart by that. And yeah. so my heart ought to be torn apart by that and say, what can I do about it? And, you know, just praying or just saying, hey, if we could just pass a few laws or tell those people to get better, you know, that's not going to do it. And, and there are systemic issues and, and system issues of why that exists. And we have to, we have to go after the, that systemic change. Yeah as well as just having a homeless feed or a poor, a, a poverty feed every once in a while. And so that's where government comes in that you, you've got to change the government and the mindset of a whole city to change those factors. Yeah. One of the practices that has um, helped me uh, quite a bit is to get curious about people whose life experiences have been different than mine. So good. Yeah. And, and to have a, not a conversation where you're defending, defending your way of seeing things, but just go, going, tell me about you and how, how's life been for you? And what's your, 
what's been your experience with law enforcement and government and things like that? And I live, I live in a neighborhood called the Mission District. And what you shared about your kids in, in your neighborhood versus other neighborhoods, my kids in my neighborhood have people just in our neighborhood based on race and class, we have very different opportunities and, and outcomes. You know, my kids are not going to be profiled or targeted by the police. They could be doing the exact same behavior as a person, as a young person of color and get a very different, very different outcome based on that. I've had the same thing happen, like that I'm treated very differently because I'm a straight white male versus my neighbors who are Latin American or African American and things like that. And it's, our society set up so that we rarely make those cross those boundaries. But when we do, I know it increases my level of understanding and compassion and, and the reasons why some, some things need to, some, some system things need to change. Yeah. Um, we had a young man on our block in 2015, we heard gunshots and he was, and it's not an uncommon occurrence, I usually wait five minutes and when I hear the sirens, I run out the door and see how I can be helpful. But that night we didn't hear any sirens. And I thought, well, it must've been someone, you know, shooting a gun for celebration or maybe it was, maybe it was fireworks. But the next morning in the paper, it was reported that um, my neighbor was shot and killed by SFPD, by two undercover officers. And I went around the block and started talking with neighbors and I said, um, what happened? And they said, these two guys who didn't, who didn't look like cops tackled this young man on the block. And when he pulled the knife out to defend himself, they pulled their guns. He dropped the knife and turned to run and they shot him in the back. Oh. And that was eyewitnesses saying this. And I said, well, have you talked to anybody about it? And he said, we're not going to tell, we're not going to let anybody know what we saw because we've had relatives who testified and they disappeared and the police went door to door, collected people's cell phones and cameras and told them to stay inside. The body was whisked off before the coroner could do his proper investigation. And that was a crash course for our family to go. There's some systemic issues here. And I know that law enforcement has a very difficult job to do, and I'm not trying to scapegoat here or disrespect the, the hard one service of, of, of officers or departments, but there's some protocols in place that were built in that allowed for an aggressive engagement that cost my neighbor his life. He happened to be an undocumented immigrant, and I didn't grow up knowing what the U.S. government's engagement was in places like El Salvador and Guatemala, that we destabilized those governments and sided with the rich over the poor, and that many people who live in my neighborhood because they'd work co- collaborated with the U.S. government and w- after those times were over, it was no longer safe for them to be there. So on many different levels, there are the, there's this complexity to this that, I, that I, I've benefited from some of these systemic issues and, I'm, and we're all experiencing the difficulties of them too. And so how do we, I don't think it's a matter of blaming, but how do we sit, sit in the struggle and just have the courage to lament? And that's been a big theme for me the last few years 
The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. I think we have a discomfort with that. Uh, we like to be, we like to celebrate the good things, hide the things that are painful, you know, and it's, it's hard, especially for a dominant culture person like me to own the fact that some of my ancestors had African slaves. I grew up on land that was taken that w- by force and through violence in a genocide against indigenous people, Lakota and Chippewa Ojibwe people in the Midwest. And that, that I wouldn't have the opportunities that I do if those resources hadn't been taken from somebody else. And that's not to, uh, that, that's just, that's just acknowledgement. But, but it, I, I spent many years being defensive of these things. Well, yeah, I, it wasn't me who chose those things. That was other people. And maybe I'm related to them by blood, but I think the gospel calls us to sit with it and anyone who's mourning and grieve, grieve with them and also grieve for the mistakes that we've made intentional or unintentional that have adversely affected people locally or globally, and that that's, that's the appropriate posture for us as followers of God and the way of Jesus, and that it maybe we could see much deeper healing of the divides if we had the courage to mourn with those who mourn. Hi, everybody. It's Paul. Thanks for letting me interrupt. I want to invite you to a special part of the NPE community. That is our Patreon page. Patreon is a website that helps creatives do what they do and get some support from people at a, at a very low level. Ours is $5.99 a month at its smallest level. And you get some special opportunities with Ashley and me. We do some things just for our Patreon community. I'm going to start doing some of my Bible thoughts Uh, from time to time on there as well, if that's something that would interest you. And one of our major features right now is the release of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong, in audiobook series form. I take a few of the chapters, read them as a segment, and record them, put them on the Patreon page for the nonpartisan evangelical Patreon community, and then I do a special exclusive commentary of what those chapters mean to me as well, why they were written the way they were, And I think you'll find that interesting. So if you want to join us on that, go to my website, nppodcast.com, and hit that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. Let me give you a little sample of what the audiobook series sounds like. This is a chapter where our protagonist, Saul Thompson, who's the pastor of a megachurch and sort of the right-wing evangelical leader in his town, is speaking to the conservative Republican elected mayor, Andy Strapp, who's a young guy just elected mayor in that city. Saul often felt for Andy, a young man constantly being pulled on by everyone, from party leaders to Beckering citizens. Andy owed his election to Beckering's conservative evangelical community, a group of people who take great pride in their ability to elect people from their own ranks and expect a lot from those afforded their loyalty. How are you doing, Andy? asked Saul as Christie handed the mayor a glass of water and exited the office. Things are pretty crazy, Pastor, said Andy as he leaned forward on the couch. I thought people would appreciate me trying to help them, but these days everyone is as mad as a possum caught in a hen house net. You know I'm always praying for you, Saul responded, bouncing his foot a bit, hanging at the end of a leg crossed over the other to give himself a release from the tension he felt rolling off of Andy. For a guy like Andy Strapp, who lived for the cheering crowd, 
this life had to be difficult to bear. Matthew McGinnis tells me not to worry about complainers, Andy shared. He says keep punching the issues our people care about, and that'll get you to the state legislature. But Andy seemed to look through Saul more than at him as he paused. But you actually want to help people, said Saul, finishing the statement. Saul knew Andy was sincere. Although fairly new to the Christian faith, the mayor held prayer meetings and Bible studies right in the mayor's office, much to the consternation of the town's liberal wing. The prayer meetings were attended by Saul and some of the other elite members of BCC, as well as council members, city management staff, and others. Separation of church and state, screamed the opponents, but Saul and his people enjoyed being in power and having a government lean toward Christian cultural causes. The prayer meetings were known as a place to gain influence with city officials. Opponents call it the pray-to-play method of getting projects greenlit by the city. These people felt this was unfair, as anyone holding wrong positions on social issues such as gay marriage or abortion were not welcome. Helping people is what got me into this, Andy confirmed. That means serving as a good mayor, not taking care of Matthew and the party. Andy ran his big right hand through his thick mane and leaned back. But the really important issues we care about are party issues, responded Saul. Does our party not care about potholes? Andy verbally counterpunched as he sat forward to grab his water glass. And how about putting together a good city plan and a budget meeting the needs of the people? Does God not care about those issues, Pastor? So that's kind of what it sounds like in our audiobook series. And you can get that right now. Our first four segments are up. The next is coming soon on that Patreon website. So if you would like to join and help support the cause of the nonpartisan evangelical, go to my website, npepodcast.com, click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, and join us in this journey together. We would really appreciate it, and we love the folks we have on there right now. Again, npepodcast.com is the website. Click the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, and it'll take you to the site, and you can join our Patreon community. Well, that's Mark Scandrett from his website is markscandrett.com. Is that right? Dot com? Yep. Yeah. And spell that S-C-A-N-D-R-E-T-T-E. Yep. Got it. All right. Markscandrett.com. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, when we think about the, the, what's happening at the border and the separation of the children from their families, you know, I get that the border issue is difficult and I'm, I'm not going to go for a simple answer there, but I also live a block from where we put Japanese American citizens in prison for being looking Japanese. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think it's really important to hang on to that history. And I I like putting in the terms of mourn so that we just say that can never happen again. We can never let our fear, let us get there again, because that was a horrible thing that we did. Or McCarthyism was a terrible thing that how people got accused for nothing and law was subverted because of our fear of communism and just say, we're, we're going to have those things out in the open, not because we hate America or we have white guilt, but because we want to be better in the future and, and remember those things. So we will never allow them to happen again. Yeah. I was with an Aboriginal community in, in South Australia last year and the year before and they were telling me about some of the injustices that they're, they've gone through, which would be similar to indigenous people here. And when I, what, something they said to me has really stuck with me. They said, Mark, we don't blame people like you for what happened in the past. But now that you know the truth, 
you and I together have a responsibility to make a different and better future. And I, I love that kind of both acknowledgement and compassionate generosity to say, we're not blaming, but, but let's, let's make a better future together. And that's, yeah. it's beautiful. And, and I, I do think as a pattern, sadly, we as evangelicals have had a history of building tombs to the prophets <laughs> after we executed them. You know, my grandfather was a professor at Wheaton College in one of the kind of premier evangelical universities and, or colleges. And back in 1968, when MLK was assassinated, they wouldn't lower the flag. Mm. Most, most people of, of my background didn't feel like he was a good character and that this uh, civil rights movement was anything to be, to, to celebrate or join in with. And boy, we look back now and see it very differently. You know, that this was, this was, this was primarily people of faith showing up in public in the name of Jesus Christ and putting their lives on the line. So it makes me wonder, what are we missing today that 30 years from now will go, wow, I wish we'd, I wish we'd been more current with what the spirit was trying to do in that time. And I'd like, I'd like to learn to be the kind of evangelical that doesn't, doesn't only have 2020 vision looking back, but can see right now where the fault line of love is in our time. Wow, that's, that is powerful. That is powerful. But, I want to ruminate on that just a little bit. Honestly, there's a cost to that because if you stand at that fault line of love in your time, as Jesus did, as, you know, countless people since then have done, Jesus promised you're going to be misunderstood by your family and closest yeah. friends mm. and the people you worship with. Yeah. It, it makes me, I, I remember when Muhammad Ali died, how universally loved he was. And I know when I was a kid, the people around me didn't love him very much. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and would call him Cassius Clay and refuse to call him Muhammad Ali and yeah. and all of these things. And I, I think that's that's such a good challenge you're bringing. What it, what is happening today that I'm against that in 30 years or 25 years, whatever my grandchildren are going to say, you know, Grandpa, what were you what were you doing then? Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to say I was on the right side of history. Yeah. Yeah, so that's great. And, and read a letter from Birmingham jail to be New Year's Day 2018 and read Martin Luther King Jr. saying, I'm most disappointed in the moderates. I thought they would come and help us, but the white moderates want us to wait or whatever else. And, and it just, I, I'm, so I'm exactly just turning in my head what you're saying is, Am I a moderate that's afraid to speak up right now? Or do I need to get a little radical yeah. and, uh, and stand up for, with people? And I think there's better ways of standing up. Like we have to, we have to, to you know, like, like the Hebrew Bible calls us to, to speak, speak for those who have no voice, defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And there's a way to do that that 
is respectful and honoring and isn't blaming or scapegoating. Right. And we have to rise above the kind of polarities and us versus them mentality that is stoked by the media. You know, nothing sells advertising like controversy. Yeah. And, and I, I think that in a lot of my cross political conversations, I feel like I'm having, I'm, I'm a, I'm a stand in for the scapegoat that someone has heard about on Fox news. Like I'm not really, we're not engaging as two people. We're, we're, it's, it's abstracted. Hmm. And so one of the things that's really helped me is to say, rather than getting my information third hand, I want to be, I want to be in relationship with people who are connected to these issues of struggle. So rather than being paranoid or afraid of my Islamic brothers and sisters, I'm going to visit a mosque. I'm going to make friends. I'm going to go to an Eid Iftar celebration and find out, find out the stories of these people that people like me have learned to fear as the other. You know, I during when Black Lives Matter was just beginning, our I did I did maybe a dad move, and a dismissive move. My daughter brought it up at the dinner table, and I said, "I'm not going to post anything about this because I see everybody posting, and it doesn't cost anybody anything to post their opinions on Facebook." And my daughter said, "Dad, you as a follower of Jesus, you're obligated to press in on this, and." And to ha- and to speak up if someone if someone's powerless, I said okay, but I'm not going to do it like ever like like I see other people doing it. I said let's get up from the table now and go to the subway station and at least listen to what our brothers and sisters of color are feeling right now, so that I don't have a story that's third hand. I have a first hand story, and it I think that first hand story is a really powerful way of getting beyond the the typical divides. If we can testify to, I was talking with my neighbor who is undocumented. I was talking with this, I was talking, I was talking with this person who voted for Donald Trump and <laughs> right. Yeah. Rather than, well, I saw this thing on my preferred media outlet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a, had a, on this podcast, a young woman that works with marginalized po- populations in our city, mainly Hispanic undocumented and and those that group of people and one of the things she said on this podcast and she she was a, a, a brilliant young woman and she was challenging me in a lot of ways and and one of the things she said that I, I sort of cringed and I thought oh man she said for us white evangelical people voting for Donald Trump was a big middle finger that told us we don't matter and I thought oh that's not fair you know that and that's going to make people turn off my podcast. But I think what, what is important about that is, can we hear that? Can we hear people around us say, hey, this really hurts because of this? Yeah. And, and if we want to say, well, listen, let me explain where I'm coming from. That's fine. But we've got to hear. And so I think that's where, kind of what you're talking about in that proximity of being with people who come from different places to just be willing to hear what they have to say and, and being willing to say, okay, I hurt with you before I start to explain myself. Yeah. yeah. A, f- a friend of mine said, 
I don't want to make statements where I don't have skin in the game. And he and his dad were having a bit of a debate about immigration policy. And he, he was able to turn the conversation when he said this, dad, my next door neighbor is undocumented. So this isn't theoretical, but I'm telling you that if ICE comes to our block, I will be standing in the doorway protecting my neighbor and I am committed to this action. And it sort of blew past all of the platitudes and they, were, they began to have a different conversation when it got to the practicalities. And incidentally, I think it's helpful to note, some of us live better than our politics or ideas. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of wonderful evangelical folks that care for the poor, are, are friends across uh, and worship with people across race and class. And they have ideas that would lead them to a less compassionate action. But the spirit of God in them calls them to live better than they, invites them to live better than their ideas. And then there's some of us, and I would include myself in this, I live below my ideas. You know, I think I, think, I, think I have the right ideas. I think I have smart ideas. And I don't love to the level of my, my ideas. And I think the goal would be to close the gap for all of us where we, we think carefully, critically, and compassionately and wrestle with the nuances. And we also act in the character of Christ and the love of God in our lives and not have those two things separated, you know? Wow. So you, you can have a, you can have a politically woke person who still scapegoats, blames other people and is bitterly angry and treats their neighbor with contempt. That's, that's, but has great ideas about public policy. That's not, <laughs> that's not the wholeness that the gospel invites us into either. I, I guess isn't that what Jesus was talking about when he said, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I say, don't call your brother a fool. Yeah. And so you can, you can be right on some of those things and still, still wrong on a bunch of them. So yeah. sorry, that's my, what is that making that noise? <laughs> sorry, that's my, my iPad. We've got too much technology around us now. I did want to hit on you. So you've written some themes and some training and done some things around Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, which I, I agree is central to some, some of this yeah. discussion right now. Tell me a little bit about that and the nine themes that you pulled out from the Beatitudes. Yeah. So I got invited into an international project a few years ago called Nine Beats, and it's a group of artists, activists, pastors, and theologians who said, maybe the Beatitudes have something compelling to invite us into in the 21st century. And so we started getting a diverse group of leaders together to do a deep dive into the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And out of that, we're, we were able to pilot a resource we call the Ninefold Path. And the idea is that with the Beatitudes, Jesus is naming some of the traps that we fall into in our minds that are less than the kingdom of God. I call them first instincts. So our first instinct 
is to be anxious rather than trusting. It's to run from pain and responsibility rather than mourning what's broken. Our first instinct is toward competition, towards a sense of fatalism, towards judgment and retribution, and towards us versus them thinking, towards dishonesty and, and posturing, towards towards a retributive view of, of justice and eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And at each of these points that is our normal, natural consciousness, Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount is inviting us into the, what I would call the psychology of the kingdom of God, the consciousness of the kingdom of God. And it calls us to a nine different conversions that instead of being anxious, I learned to trust God and live interdependently. Instead of running from pain, I face pain and take responsibility. Instead of being competitive, I see everyone as having equal dignity and worth, and we're all in this together. Instead of saying, the problems are overwhelming, let's just wait for Jesus to come again, I say, no, we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we're to participate in the good that God wants to see happen in this world. And even if Jesus is coming back soon, we don't know when, and our grandkids and future gener- generations need a, need a planet that they can breathe on that's sustainable. So let's, let's keep working on that. It's <laughs> ah, good stuff. And, and Jesus was not a pansy by not fighting yeah. with the zealots to overthrow the government. He actually yeah. was extremely powerful to to yeah. stay humble and, and not do the things that he could have yeah. done. So we created a, a process of taking on practices to say, what is the life, what is the consciousness that Jesus is inviting us into? What shifts do we need to make in our minds and hearts and relationships? And what are the practices that might help us to do that? Hmm. And the genius of it is, it not just being ideas, but we've, we've gathered groups all over the country and all over the world to say, let's do this work together. Let's figure out how to be peacemakers. Let's figure out how to treat everyone with equal dignity and worth. Let's stop judging and look at one another with compassion and to really learn to live in those life-giving ways. Wow, that's good. So I, I do this podcast and what I do in part because I think there are some people who are just as in bondage to this idea of conservative partisan politics, and I want them to be free of that. So what uh, kind of what's the first step that you encourage people to take to, to, to see that, that principle of, of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and, and being yeah. free of, of some of those old mindsets? I think, a, I think a simple thing to do would be read the Sermon on the Mount and say, how do I, like, I think, it, I think it really helps to start with myself to say, if the gospel calls me to be non-judgmental, to be active in making the world a better place, to, to let go of resentments, to, you know, all, the, all those things, where is the gap in my life? And to be honest about those gaps, I get angry, I want to retaliate. I do talk, often talk in terms of us and them. I feel anxious. I hoard my resources. 
I feel defensive about what's mine. And to recognize, like not feel shame about those things. You know, I don't think shame or should are good motivators, but to go, wow, I, it sucks to think this way. It sucks to be judgmental. It sucks to live in resentment. It sucks to be scapegoating. It's, it, it doesn't feel good inside. And the gospel calls me to a better way. I like it. I like it. And it, so you have a couple of books here, uh, Practicing the Way of Jesus. And, uh, and it's, is that the Ninefold Path? Is that the, the yeah, book you're talking the, about there? Yeah, there's a website called ninefoldpath.org. There's a bunch of videos on there and then links to where to get these resources. And markscandrett.com is the website for our author, teacher, guest today. So Mark's been fun having this conversation with you. I got to say, one of my practices last week was to, to pray for people who I've had contempt for. Oh, and so wow. I had, so I had a, I create every morning during my quiet time, I had a pray for my enemies document that I, <laughs> I you don't had, want to list uh, them off right now, do you? Well, I'm not going to tell you all of them, <laughs> but, um, but I, I can show you, I can, I'll just, I'll just read you what I wrote. I, I had our, our current, our current president was on my list of people that I've tended to have contempt towards. And so every morning I would get up and I, I have a picture of him and his son. He's kissing his son on the forehead. And I would pray every morning, Lord, for Donald, may he find peace, embrace goodness and love and experience what is most real and true. And there was a couple other public figures that I had on there. Not that they're my personal enemies, but that they're people who are hurting their, their perspectives and their decisions are hurting people that are dear to me. And so, who, you know, sort of like who, who's ever an enemy of my brother is my sort of my enemy. And I was like, well, and then I'm called to love my enemy and, and pray blessings on them. And so I noticed this practice each morning, subtly shifting my heart, you know, that, that I'm, I'm called to resonate with God's heart for the current president and administration to, to not operate in contempt or res, resentment or wanting to see evil done, done to them. Yeah. I, I want the spirit of God to be at work in them, just like I long for the spirit to be at work in my heart and helping me to show up on the planet in the most redemptive ways possible. Well, that's a good challenge. That's awesome. Well, hey, Mark, a, a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. I really appreciate you giving us the time and, and having this deep discussion and challenging one. Yeah, really great to be with you, Paul. I, I really appreciate what you're doing and the heart that you do it with. All right. <laughs> I, can, can I, I, I like to pray. Can I, can, I, can I offer a prayer for us? Love it. Love it. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Lord, today may we live with open hands, mourn what's broken, serve one another with self-respect, use our power for good, look with compassion, walk in honesty, reach past differences, suffer for love, and live fearlessly following your way of radical love. Amen. Love it. That was kind of your preacher and poet mix there. I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Mark, we'll talk to you again soon, man. All right, great to be with you. you Peace. Too. Bye-bye.